Five Aero Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the aviation industry. Today is the 31st of December 2020, and late last night, the EU Open Brackets Future Relationship Close Brackets Bill was passed into UK law. So we've put down our mince pies and have assessed how this document is going to impact the aviation sector in the short, medium and long term. To do this, I'm not only joined by Chris Tarry and Peter Lynham from Five Aero, but we're really lucky today to also have with us Jeremy Robinson, a partner and specialist in EU and competition law from Watson, Farley and Williams. Hi gents, how are you all today? And Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Andrew. Hello. Merry Christmas, Andrew. Right, there's so much to get through on the show today, so let's get straight into it right now. Okay, so the overall agreement is 1,256 pages long, and we'll link to that within the show notes. Now, we're not going to discuss the entire document, but instead we are going to focus on heading 2, Aviation, and that's on page 224 through to 249 of the agreement. As I said, there's loads here, but to try and structure our discussions, we're going to look at five broad topics. We're going to try and provide an overview of the section as a whole to tell you what's moving, what isn't moving, how is this document looking and feeling. Then we're going to get into some of the specifics around the agreement. Uh, Specifically, we're going to look at traffic rights, airline nationality, the implications for leasing and fifth freedoms and cargo. Once we've done that, we're then going to get into that complex issue of state aid and the role of the new specialised committee on air transport and try and get into this question of is Brexit within the context of aviation really done? Um, We're then going to look at the implications for EU 261. And finally, we're going to round off looking at the abolition of visa-free travel and talk about what the potential implications might be for the long-term recovery of the aviation and the other related industries. So, Jeremy, Let's go right back up to the top. But why don't you start by just giving us an overview and, and a feel for what this heading is all about and what it's achieving and what it's not achieving? Thank you, Andrew. Well, the heading comprises two titles. Uh, one title and the longer of the two titles is Air Transport. And the second and shorter title concerns Aviation Safety. And I would like to focus most of my remarks on the first title on Air Transport, because this is where I think the meat of the changes really take place, certainly at a theoretical and legal level. And I want to talk about uh, traffic rights in particular, because those change dramatically from the rights which UK carriers enjoy in the EU today, and the rights which EU carriers enjoy in the UK today. And this is bound up quite closely with the question of airline nationality, um, as well as leasing. And there are certain imbalances in the agreement that we need to go through. I think that for me, the most interesting area of change of the lot is is the traffic rights. And if you'll permit me, I will go through some of those big changes. To set the scene to start with, there are commonly considered to be nine freedoms of the air, of which five of them are official freedoms of the air and four of them are considered to be unofficial. Um, The first and second are, are pretty straightforward and you won't find those not agreed anywhere. The third and the fourth freedoms are the right to fly from your home state to another state and the right to fly back again. Those first four freedoms are commonly exchanged between countries entering into air transport agreements. Where things start to get interesting, particularly in a world where you don't have complete freedom to um, own, take over, merge with airlines from other countries, Where it gets interesting is from traffic rights five onwards. Under the current arrangements that the UK is still a part of until the end of tomorrow, all nine freedoms are exchanged. The fifth freedom is the right to fly from your home state to another state and then onward from that state to a third country with permission of the third country. And this has been quite important, certainly in aviation history, in enabling networks to be built up. Jumping over the sixth one for the time being, the seventh, eighth and ninth freedoms are further liberalisations of your rights. And the seventh and ninth in particular have been particularly important in the EU as creating the conditions in which the low cost revolution has taken place. Because what the seventh allows you to do as a carrier is to fly between two countries, neither of which is your home state, Uh, without any connection with the home state. So, for example, if I am a UK carrier, I could fly between France and Germany. The ninth freedom is the right to fly between two points within a state that isn't your own, again, 
without being connected to your own country. So, for example, that might be a route between for a UK carrier flying between Paris and Nice. So under the EU arrangements now, all nine freedoms of the air are considered to be exchanged. By leaving the EU and the single market, the UK will benefit from only the first four out of those nine freedoms of the air. The fifth freedom has also been excluded. There is the possibility, but certainly no, not the certainty, for the parties to agree on cargo only fifth freedom rights. Uh, that's at um, Article Airtran 3.4. So it's very clear that this is the case. They use the words all cargo air transport services. So a passenger plane that is carrying belly hold cargo would not be included in this. So at first sight, what has been agreed is a substantial retreat from open skies as UK carriers have enjoyed it. What may be open to question is how much of a practical difference this makes uh, for day-to-day flying or the day-to-day scheduling of different airlines. For two principal reasons, I think. First, low-cost carriers have had a certain amount of time to prepare for the possibility that the UK and the EU might not reach a comprehensive air services arrangement to replace the one currently in existence. And so a number of them have acquired air operator certificates in other states to enable them to carry on providing, broadly speaking, the same service that they have been able to up to now. And the second reason is that when it comes to the exercise of fifth freedom rights within the EU, it's really for airlines to comment directly on this. But I question how often within the network planning of UK uh, AOC holders, fifth freedom rights have been included and how often consumers have been able to take advantage of them. So it may be seen after a while that the practical commercial effect of the restriction of traffic rights is less than it first appears. This is why we have lawyers, isn't it? And this is why having lawyers on the the show are great. So what we're really saying there is that this document will restrict the airlines, UK airlines' ability to operate. But then there's a question mark around whether they actually use that right to operate at all. Is that the right synopsis? That is that is the question I'm asking, yes. Okay, so then we, we talked as well about airline nationality. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, well, with airline nationality, the ability of an airline to take advantage of traffic rights depends on its nationality. Airlines have nationality. Um, And that is commonly comprised of three principal elements. Ownership and control, where the airline has its principal place of business, and where it holds its air operator certificate. And the proposed trade and cooperation agreement between the UK and the EU describes all three of those uh, matters, because this is the basis for the exercise of traffic rights. So for a UK carrier. Uh, The UK carrier has to be owned directly or through majority ownership and effectively controlled by the UK or its UK nationals or both. The air carrier has to have its principal place of business in the territory of the UK and is licensed in accordance with UK law. And it must hold an air operator certificate issued in the UK. For the EU, you have pretty much identical provisions but uh, with EU substituting the UK. It also includes Switzerland for this purpose. Now, there is an imbalance built into this agreement, however, because the UK has generally had a more open stance towards external investment than the EU. So there's a very limited exception to this rule in the TCA, which is that for existing air carriers of the UK, if at the date the transition period ends, so namely if at the end of tomorrow they already hold a valid EU operating licence in accordance with EU law, they may continue to be owned and effectively controlled by EU member states or EEA member states or Switzerland or by nationals of any of those. A reciprocal right does not exist in the other direction. So existing UK airlines can still benefit from uh, extra uh, investment from 
the EEA and Switzerland, whereas EEA airlines and Swiss airlines cannot benefit from that type of majority ownership and control on the UK side. And with this, I think you also have to <coughs> look at Article AirTran 9, which is a curious paragraph on page 229 of the agreement, which relates to future discussions about ownership and control of air carriers. And this paragraph is interesting for two reasons. First, the parties have agreed now to examine in a new committee, a specialised committee on air transport, options for reciprocally liberalising these ownership and control rules within 12 months of this agreement. So sometime during 2021, the parties will have to get around a table and discuss whether or not they can liberalise ownership and control rules. And as a result of that examination, they may decide to amend this title. So that's the whole title of air transport. Now, of course, they may not. There is nothing binding about this. There's no guarantee that anything is going to change to liberalise ownership and control rules at all. Equally, uh, even if they do decide to change ownership and control rules, that is only one of the three indicia, indicia of nationality of an airline. And so it doesn't necessarily change the traffic rights. However, what is not clear, or if I were to read this paragraph on its face, it suggests that as a result of the parties getting around a table to talk about ownership and control, they may decide to amend not just the ownership and control rules, but potentially everything else within this air transport title. So one could argue that what looks like a final retreat from open skies is just the beginning of a new phase of negotiation. Right. So, so okay, I've already put my, head, my, my pen down and I, I'm scratching my head already, but let's just try and get this again. So we've already got the UK carriers may have less rights to fly within Europe. However, they may not have used those rights ever. So the implications of that we're not sure about. But then on this issue of ownership, if I get this right, the, the UK could invest into an EU airline, but the EU airline couldn't invest into a UK airline. And then whatever that arrangement is, within the next 12 months, we've all got to sit around a table where we could decide to change that agreement or any other part of that agreement, or we could not. Is that right? You were two, two thirds correct. You, you, yes, you, you had one bit the wrong way around. It is that the UK airline can receive greater investment from EU airlines that EU airlines can get from UK. So I think in, in plain English, Andrew, British Airways can still be owned by a holding company which is registered in Spain, which is remaining part of the EU. So it acquires grandfather rights on ownership. Andrew, if I might also add to that, the other, the other point I made is if you were starting a new airline tomorrow and acquiring a new operating license in the UK, well, not, not tomorrow, <laughs> From the 1st of January, you would not uh, be able to take advantage of that additional EU investment possibility. You would not necessarily be able to get an EU airline to invest more in you. OK, so why would we agree to that? We wanted it, Andrew. The UK wanted it because otherwise BA and IAG were in a bind because BA clearly satisfies Jeremy's two out of three uh, requirements in that its principal place of business is London and its air operator certificate is uh, based in London, but it is owned by a Spanish company. And so in theory, BA could have lost its route licenses had this clause not been inserted. So this is not just something we've agreed to, this is something we've insisted upon. And then so if we've looked at traffic rights and air nationality, then we were going to discuss leasing as well. So what's the implications for that, Jeremy? Well, leasing uh, has always been a, a difficult and controversial subject. Um, each party to this agreement um, has the right to use dry leased aircraft uh, as before, but they also have the right to use wet leased aircraft. And a bit like with the nationality provision, there is a kind of there's an imbalance uh, in what is allowed here. So the UK, again, is more open to allowing UK airlines to obtain wet leased aircraft from EU AOC holders than the EU is towards 
the UK. This is in AirTran 13.7. So for carriers of the UK, they can use aircraft leased with crew from other air carriers of the parties. So that's from the EU. So if BA wanted to wet lease in some planes from Lufthansa, no problem at all. But in the next paragraph, it says for EU air carriers, you can use aircraft leased with crew from other air carriers of the EU. So Lufthansa couldn't do the same and wet lease in aircraft from BA. They could wet lease in aircraft from Air France. So again, you can see that this is specifically uh, benefiting carriers such as BA. And in fact, there's a practical example of that for the next couple of months where the BA Belfast to London Heathrow service has been wet leased to Aer Lingus aircraft and crew, which otherwise would not have been possible had this clause not existed. And why would the EU not want the same right? Why would they just not, you know, exact mirror image of the same right? I don't think they need it, to be honest, um, Andrew, because they've got 27 states still within the European Union, plus the EEA countries, with whom they can swap aircraft and crew, whereas Britain would be very much isolated and would only be able to interact with its own domestic carriers. So so this is something um, which was a huge need for UK carriers, particularly BA being part of a pan-European group and the, the ability to continue to be able to swap aircraft and crew round uh, between the likes of uh, Vueling, Iberia, Ellingus, and BA is a key part of IAG's original raison d'etre when it was set up as a company. I might also add that it's not a big give for the EU anyway. At the end of the day, it is for the UK and the UK regulators to satisfy themselves that the air carriers that they regulate are operating safely and in accordance with rules. And so if the UK decides to treat EU carriers as meeting all the uh, essential requirements um, for their aircraft to be wet leased into the UK, that's fine with the EU. It's not necessarily the case that the the EU will wish to accept, uh, in all cases, uh, aircraft uh, from from the UK. There is an exception that I uh, I ought to point out for the sake of completeness, uh, which is that those rules can be uh, temporarily ignored um, if there are exceptional needs or seasonal capacity needs or operational difficulties, but provided that, that the duration of any wet lease doesn't go beyond what's strictly necessary to meet those needs. So in a normal circumstances situation, you have an imbalance in the rules, but as Peter says, um, it is one that benefits the UK, but is not a big thing for the EU to give. But in exceptional situations, uh, both sides can make uh, broader use than that. It's it's fascinating, isn't it, to kind of get into the detail of the document and really see how this plays out. Because you could see how either of these arguments could be spun either way, but to really understand the background and the basis to it. Um, we've already talked about freedoms, or you touched about it earlier. Uh, the, the specific implications for cargo, what, what's that? So the specific implication for cargo is, as at day one, absolutely nothing. Uh, because on Day one, unless another agreement is put in place uh, straight away, there is no fifth freedom right for cargo or for passengers, uh, for for air carriers, in either direction. Um, all that there is is in AirTran 3.4, um, which is that the parties may, subject to their own rules and procedures, enter into bilateral arrangements for all cargo, scheduled or non-scheduled, uh, fifth freedom rights. That's all. It's not. An, it's not. It's somewhat less than the AirTran Nine ownership and control, where we know they're going to sit around a table in the next year to talk about it, but we just don't know whether they're going to talk about anything and reach any agreement about anything. All we have here is the possibility that at some stage they might get around the table and they might discuss granting cargo pure cargo-related fifth freedom rights. Um, But there is a provision uh, at the back end of this title which says, well, other than ownership and control and other than potential cargo fifth freedom, um, pretty much everything else is 
set in stone within this title. Subject to the point I made earlier, that maybe the ownership and control point could be used to open up discussions on, on the whole title. But I think there's a very, very simple point, which is that at the end of the day, these agreements depend on political will. And whether or not they get changed in the direction that is favourable to uh, more liberal air transport is going to depend on political will on both sides. This is a very basic agreement as far as aviation is concerned. And we will have to see whether or not any political will arises, which may depend itself on commercial lobbying, commercial need for any changes to be made. And I think that's a, a useful loophole, if you like, to have, or a, a useful flexibility, Andrew, because you can imagine um, a, an example may well come up in the next few weeks where there is a requirement to move vaccine from, say, Brussels to Pakistan. And this flexibility will allow a company such as Virgin Atlantic to land in Brussels, pick up this cargo and transport it to Pakistan, which I think the EU have probably accepted is in everybody's best interest. So it's probably not worth having a fight at the moment about cargo. Um, but as Jeremy suggests, there would need to be much deeper discussions had um, before Fifth Freedom uh, passenger um, traffic was allowed. I suppose my overall comment as the, the kind of having read this and, and talked a lot about it is I, I suppose I'm, I'm struggling to understand the purpose of this document and I, I don't want to get into Brexit and whether it's a good or bad or an indifferent idea because that's for other co conversations but as my kind of read of this was that broadly on the 1st of January nothing will practically or operationally change. The airline industry will continue. Most of what this document does is, is say things will stay the same. But then there are certain things, so traffic rights, nationality, leasing, fifth freedoms, car, we know we've discussed them. They are changing. But I'm not sure to what extent any of those changes practically matter, which would lead me back to the point of why do we have this document at all? Well, I think you have the document to, to protect uh, both parties against things which might happen in the future. So if you um, did not have the document, as Jeremy's described it, there would have been nothing to stop, say, a company such as BA, based in Britain, suddenly deciding it was going to make a huge assault on the French domestic market and sell all of the fares for five euros. Um, which would have been perfectly allowable when we were all friends within the EU, but it's not something that the EU would want from what is now seen as a foreign country. And in order that they can continue uh, their business, as Jeremy described, on routes such as Paris to Nice, etc., then companies such as EasyJet have had to set up uh, European subsidiaries to get around that. So it, it's a protectionist clause, but, but as you suggest, um, no, no carrier at the moment makes use of those freedoms anyway, um, as much as we can see. We've trawled through all the timetables and we couldn't find one single example of um, companies such as BA um, landing in Europe and then picking up passengers to go somewhere else. If I might add to that, Peter, I think there are, there are two points that stand out for me. One is that one reason nothing much will change on the 1st of January, is that flying to and from the UK into the EEA has been so drastically curbed as a result of the pandemic or the government's reactions in relation to the pandemic, that passenger movements uh, will scarcely be noticeable. Uh, and the second reason is you, when it comes to traffic rights, every country in the world has sovereignty over its own airspace. And entering into an air transport agreement where you exchange traffic rights is absolutely essential for air transportation to exist, civilian air transport. So absent this title of the overall document, there would be pretty much nothing to fall back on. And for the no-deal scenario that was considered to be a possibility, the EU proposed, even as far back as two years ago, before we even left the EU, that they would have to put in place basic connectivity. Because in the absence of something, there would be nothing. 
Now, as for the the tariffs and being able to uh, price dump on each other's market, that's that leads into a question we'll come on to later about uh, state aid and discrimination. But one thing that is notable in this agreement is that although it is a basic air transport agreement, it rose back quite a long way from open skies. One thing the parties do not do is subject each other's tariffs to prior approval. It is a clear principle of this document that the carriers are free to set whatever prices they like, and within the traffic rights that are granted, there is no restriction on the frequency uh, or the type of planes they use. Um, it is it is a broadly open market for that purpose. So if, if BA uh, wanted to floor its prices on uh, London, Paris, it could do so. Uh, whether or not that would generate the, the necessary goodwill to push for a wider liberalisation of uh, traffic rights into the EU is a wholly separate question. And so you'll have to forgive me here, Jeremy, as I, as I keep just trying to keep on top of this. So BA could effectively price dump and drop its prices flying over to Paris, to Berlin, to Madrid, or wherever it wanted to go. EU carriers could do exactly the same back onto the UK? Yes. With one one caveat, that in each case, when we're talking about price dumping, pricing very, very low fares, there is always the risk that uh, one party or the other will accuse the other of pricing anti-competitively below cost. And you do occasionally get those cases in the airline sector. But subject to that, if they are pricing lawfully, then this agreement doesn't stop carriers of either side pricing the way they want. And and do we think that might, again, I suppose it's because we're coming out of the COVID world or hopefully coming out of the COVID world, do we actually think that will happen? Could this benefit the consumer? Well, price competition is generally considered to benefit the consumer enormously, as is a wide availability and, and choice of service providers. One thing that we'll have to see in years to come is whether the restrictions on traffic rights, as well as the broader effects from COVID on the aviation sector lead to a situation where for routes into, out of and within the EU, the choice of carriers is reduced uh, such that those carriers who remain can charge more. We will simply have to see, Andrew, whether or not the consumer is a winner, a loser or is entirely neutral as a result of this. Well, well, we'll keep a watching brief on that one. But we, we, you mentioned it earlier around um, state aid. And we've also, right at the top, we talked around this new committee, the Specialised Committee on Air Transport. Um, I, I said in the introduction, you know, is Brexit within the context of the aviation uh, industry really done? From everything we've discussed so far, it, it doesn't feel like that. Is that a fair assessment? I would say so. In fact, in many ways, I'd say I hope so, because... If there's any more Brexit than this, that would imply even more restrictions on the right of air transport operators to conduct their business. What I'd like to see is a step-by-step movement towards more openness, more liberalisation, because that's the best way for the industry to (coughs) get back to the situation that it enjoyed previously. With respect to non-discrimination, now's not the time to go through the whys and wherefores of the long and tortuous discussions about state aid regulation uh, that formed a a big part of the one of the main obstacles to the parties coming to an agreement. But there is an interesting question that arises from one of the provisions in the aviation title. It's AirTran 11, non-discrimination. And it says, if I may just read a little bit from this, um, the parties shall eliminate within their respective jurisdictions all forms of discrimination which would adversely affect the fair and equal opportunity of air carriers to compete in exercising their rights. So it says all forms of discrimination. So here's an interesting conundrum. Discrimination is described as differentiating in any way without any objective justification in the supply of goods or services used in air transport. So any form of differentiation without objective justification. So let us suppose you have two carriers, one UK carrier and one EU carrier. And from their respective directions, they're competing on the same route. But one carrier has received 
substantial state aid. So the question arises, that carrier is able, because of its state aid, to price its services from its home state to the UK, all other things being equal, cheaper than the UK carrier. The UK, of course, may decide not to give reciprocal state aid to its carrier or carriers. So is that fair competition? Well, let's suppose that the EU carrier's state aid was wholly lawful state aid. It was granted in accordance with EU law of state aid. So arguably, that is the objective justification for discrimination. But for the UK carrier, they would not be able to challenge it. It's a matter of EU law. Um, It would not necessarily be able to avail itself of equivalent support from the UK state. And it would have to, at best, lobby the government, then to use some political capital to go for the dispute resolution procedure and raise what are called consultations with the EU to discuss the matter. Personally, I don't believe that would actually happen. So you could have a situation where, on routes where UK carriers compete directly with EU carriers, the UK carriers may find themselves at a what I might call a lawful disadvantage. But we'll have to see in practice whether or not that actually arises. That really surprises me because, you know, coming out of all the negotiations, as you said, state aid was such a huge issue as to why we couldn't get this agreement um, signed until now. But what we're saying there is that there's now a mechanism where an EU carrier could benefit from state aid and we just don't have the right to challenge that or the mechanism by which we could legally go and try. It would all come down to politics to try and convince whichever government it was to not do that rather than being able to go to a court and force them not to do that. Is is that correct? I think that is right. Um, I think with the point about state aid in the negotiations was whether the UK would have an adequate system of subsidy control. Because if it didn't, then the EU was not keen to concede greater access to the single market. It's about level playing field. But in a situation where state aid, I'm I'm essentially arguing a converse point, if state aid law in the EU permits, in a particular case, a state to support its airlines, and let's face it, the EU governments have been uh, lavishly supporting a number of airlines across the EU since the start of the COVID outbreak, if they are lawfully supported in that way, and that in turn enables them to price more keenly on routes which may affect UK carriers, amongst others. What exactly is the UK carrier going to do about it? I suggest there's not an awful lot they can do about it. But then equally, one might argue, there's not very much difference from now, in practical terms, in the sense that If an EU carrier benefits from lawful state aid today and a UK carrier doesn't benefit from lawful state aid today, there is an inherent imbalance in the system because state aid is political and it does depend on the will of governments actually to grant it. And I suppose 12 months ago, you might have said that this really was a theoretical discussion, isn't it? But as you just said, governments across Europe, across the world have literally thrown money as we've lobbied for and argued for on this podcast, to their aviation industry to sustain it and keep it going, which I'm assuming would fall squarely within the definition of state aid. So so now looking forward and as we see, you know, the level of investment that's going to be required to bring aviation back out of COVID, we, we can expect to see the this investment from governments, you know, going into these national carriers, you know, for the foreseeable future. I think that's true, but it's going to be a broader economic question. What difference this makes because, and I'm sure Chris will come and talk about the economics shortly, but we don't know what the post-COVID aviation world looks like or when we will even have an idea of what it looks like. And in that situation, what is the practical difference of one airline who is 
state subsidized versus one who isn't? We simply don't know. And bringing it down to a, a route by route level where EU and UK carriers happen to be competing directly, um, I suspect is, is a job for an economist, not a lawyer like me. <laughs> I can see Chris um, itching to come in. But before we do that, Peter, I'm just going to come to you because before we get into the economics, which you know we're going to talk about at length, let's just touch on EU 261. We've talked about this before on Five Aero. Um, what's going, just remind people what it is and, and what the implications for it under this agreement now are. So EU 261 was the regulation signed into law in the EU in 2004, which um, gives the ability for ticket holders to claim compensation if their flight is severely delayed or if it's cancelled within 14 days of uh, when it should have operated. In theory, there would be nothing to stop the UK coming up with either a, a different regulation uh, which could be stronger or weaker, um, or indeed having no comparable regulation at all. Uh, and in fact, for UK carriers, one of the things they've been arguing uh, both at the UK level and at the European level for many years now is the need to um, either repeal or significantly amend this regulation because um, it's extremely penalising and costs the large UK-based airlines hundreds of millions of pounds per year. And arguably, the, the cost of that eventually has to be passed on to consumers. And arguably, this puts about five euros on the price of a typical ticket in terms of what it's costing the airlines to, to pay in penalties. So you can um, purchase a ticket, as we've discussed before, for, say, €10 Euros in, in one of the well-publicised uh, Ryanair sales, for example. And if that flight ends up being delayed more than three hours, which may not be the fault of Ryanair, it could be air traffic control issues or airport handling issues, etc., um, they are required to pay you, if you ask, €250 Euros in compensation. So the compensation is very much out of proportion with the amount of money you've spent. The argument on the other side from the European Union when it designed this uh, legislation is that the um, the penalty which you suffer as a consumer um, is not necessarily proportional to the amount you pay for the ticket. In other words, you could miss a meeting uh, which was there to uh, agree a very lucrative contract which eventually goes to one of your competitors, etc., which is why the... Um, uh, the, the levels of compensation were pitched where they were. But I think even the European Union accepts that that regulation is not um, operating as it was designed to be. Uh, it's led to all kinds of things like the proliferation of claims management companies who withhold some of the compensation from the consumer um, in order to finance themselves, um, none of which goes down very well in Brussels. So there's been a a series of amendments to the regulation um, which were more or less agreed at the working level um, I think about eight years ago now. In fact, I remember going to one of the meetings myself where um, we were drafting the new regulation. Um, but for various reasons, this has not reached the top of the priority list in Brussels um, and so is very much uh, becalmed. Um, and in fact, there would be the opportunity there for the, for the United Kingdom to almost do a lift and shift of that proposed version two of the regulation um, and say this is what's going to apply to UK consumers. I suppose the big caveat we have to apply to all of this is from a politician's point of view, there are generally not many votes um, that come from restricting consumer rights. So in summary, is this something that the, the British airlines will welcome because it's going to free them from this European directive, which, you know, as you said, could be quite penal? They would welcome it if, if the UK chose to go um, down that road. So far, there's been no indication that the UK will avail itself of that freedom. But I suppose this, this is one of the things that when you talk about Brexit and our right to, or the UK's right to make its own laws, etc., etc., th this is one of the examples where you could have a benefit. This would be a really good example of self-determination, yeah. No, that, that's really useful to understand that and tries to provide a little bit of balance around this the, these discussions. Now, 
I suppose let's bring Chris in here to talk about the wider implications of this document. So one of the key things here that we've seen all over the news is that there's going to be the abolition of freedom of movement. So a UK passport holder now, if you just hold your UK passport, you'll have 90 days of personal allowance where you can travel freely through Europe in a 180 day period. That's slightly different for business we're just checking that aren't we that whether whether that business you can use that for business or whether your business is day one um chris how is this document going to help the long-term economic recovery of the airlines that that we've discussed on, on this and our other podcast many many times andrew i think um you touched on it and others have touched on it as we've been speaking and it's a question about uh, having balance and uh where sometimes um, politics get in the way of the economics. And what we've seen at the sort of simplest level is the introduction of um, frictions or imperfections in the market. We had free movement before and people could travel and they're going to have to adjust to the new environment. But certainly you know, there's a debate on at the moment and um, it's almost, almost like megaphone diplomacy of which paper you read and the impact on um, the, the, the economy of the UK and the pace at which we recover. Uh, and, and again, we've got this other factor called COVID where uh, in the UK where even more people are about to be brought under the strictest restrictions uh, later on uh, this afternoon or uh, first thing tomorrow morning. So we've got all these sort of moving parts and um, it's sometimes said that uh, the, the traditional economic economist response is it depends. And I'm afraid in this case, it sort of does depend on a lot of moving parts where we have some degrees of certainty in making observations and others where uh, we don't. But I think a, a sort of reasonable view, and it's always important to be reasonable, is that, um, yes, there is going to be an economic impact and it's not just going to be the bumpy road that government has um, talked about, about uh, getting goods out through Dover and back in through Dover and, and whatever else. Um, and even before, uh, and indeed on one of our podcasts, we talked about the recovery and the pace of economic recovery in the UK. And unfortunately, the latest figures, and they're not my figures, they're independent figures, um, suggest that even by 2024, ranked of the EU 27 plus the UK, we will be in 25th place. Putting that into context in terms of uh, the economic impact and the drivers uh, for uh, air transport, GDP is going to be that remain that key driver. Household income, um, corporate income are going to be important. And now we're beginning to see the beginning of the end of, I think, COVID and you know, talk about vaccination programs. And as we've talked on previous podcasts, where our working or my working hypothesis is that uh, we will begin to see um, some sort of acceleration as we move into the summer uh, season. Um, but even then, um, what we're looking at, yes, we know there's pent up demand. Yes, we know uh, there is pent up leisure demand uh, and we will see that. We have to be very careful on talking about how much of this um, in increased savings is going back into the economy. The reality, and, and from the latest Bank of England survey, uh, the answer is very little of that is expected to go back into stimulate further expenditure. Uh, and it's not going necessarily going to be on holidays or, or, or whatever. So I think, you know, broadly, we are where we were before in terms of COVID being the overriding constraint on the industry. I think in terms of, of the whole economy, in terms of uh, what uh, this agreement does for uh, air transport, it, as I said before, it introduces um, imperfection and friction. And that, by definition, is going to hold um, growth back uh, lower than what it was before. And in both directions, um, if we look at freedom of movement and people coming into the UK, we may have a point system, but we also have a system where they have to earn a certain amount of money. Um, for a number of people, the UK may be a closed market for them for, um, and we will suffer from labour shortages as a result uh, in, the, in the short and medium term. So dislocation, um, bumpy road it was called, or some bumps in the road it was called by a government minister. Um, let's hang on and hope that it's not too bumpy uh, and that um, it, um, it, falls, uh, it, it, it comes out not as bad as some fear. I suppose just looking at the kind of the wider document and when you're reading it and you're going through, I keep kind of going between two different poles. On the one side, I'm reading it and thinking, well, actually very little has changed here. You know, as Jeremy pointed out, you know, there are there are differences. But, you know, from day 1st of January, operationally, 
you, the consumer isn't going to notice very much. This is probably as good within the time frame and the political pressure and, you know, the context. This is as good a deal as you can hope for. But then on the, the other side, I just swing back to this document is solving a problem that didn't exist four years ago. Now, I, I know that Brexit has come and that, that, that ship has sailed and that's happening, but we're effectively putting up barriers to trade. And within the within the context of the economic restart that we need post-COVID, that is going to cause a problem. It's that friction that you talk about, particularly when you get into the, the business environment, because we know that business travel is going to take so much longer to come back. You know, we've talked before how we expect leisure to come back, at least, you know, in the short term, the short term bump as people want to fly and see friends and family. But if you're now starting to impose visa restrictions and just making that travel more difficult, Within the context of COVID and the Zoom meeting and budgets being cut, putting another barrier to travel just is not helping the airline industry. I think if we look at it in terms of uh, business travel, uh, you summed it up there. It's uh, the COVID and related economic factors. I think from there's nothing really going to stop us going for a business day trip or uh, doing business. Um, or that's what the uh, agreement is intended to uh, have, have in place. But I think if we, if we look at it, um, and we, we, we have to let it play through. And I think the thing will be in six months, 12 months time when it's sort of settled down a little bit is to review it. Um, against the background of actual experience. As I say, it's probably going to be three months before we begin to see the air transport market beginning to function uh, again in, in any sort of, sort of approaching any semblance of what it was before. And that when it moves um, really through the restart phase into more or broader recovery. Um, the reality also is that if we look at short haul, short haul is going to be where that recovery is going to come through quickest. Um, uh, long haul will uh, lag for all sorts of reasons. Um, but against the background where um, our latest surveys, and we've no reason to suggest that the data may not be as relevant now as it was when we took the survey, our expectation is that we will only see business travel recover to about 30% of what it was in the 12 months um, uh, when we'll be able to fly again compared to what it was in the 12 months before COVID. So a long way back, you've got to start somewhere. Let's see as it comes through. We can, um, you know, take our views. Jeremy has sort of given us a very clear exposition of, of what the real issues are. Um, and in some areas, by interpretation, it's pretty much business as usual. But it's got to be that economic impact um, that will drive the traffic and its household income, its corporate income. And um, we're in a pretty uncertain place, um, certainly over the near and medium term in respect of, of that, I think. My view of the overall agreement, from what I've read so far, including this title, is that the agreement is about a victory of sovereignty for the UK over considerations of pure trade. And that reflects the environment in which the debate about Europe has been held in certain circles for decades. Every time there was a new European treaty, the argument was raised, this is an affront to sovereignty, we are giving up more sovereignty. But in the period after the referendum, and particularly in the last year, we've had COVID, and we've had the economic dislocation from COVID. So right now, thoughts naturally turn to what can we do to get the economy and trade back when conditions allow us to do so. And in that context, a document which focuses so heavily on giving the UK back the sovereignty that some people say it voted for seems anachronistic. I think my closing thought, Andrew, would be just to go to chapter seven of my memoirs, uh, which is entitled Working in Brussels. And I was um, one of the UK people charged with agreeing common working time legislation for flight crew and cabin crew across the 28 member states. When I picked up that project, my predecessor had been at it for 10 years and, and I gave it 10 years of my life every Monday for 10 years. And then I handed it on to somebody else. And 10 years later, it was written into European law. So something that looked comparatively simple um, and was a safety-related issue took 30 years to agree between 28 different countries. So I would not hold your breath 
um, if you think that there are going to be any near-term changes to what was agreed uh, the day before Christmas? I, I think you've kind of, I think you've all kind of summed up my personal view on it. Is that it's it's better than the document is better than not having a document. I'm not sure it's as good as what we had before. Anything that stops trade is probably not a good idea, particularly where we are as a global economy right now. But I think my big takeaway from this is that Brexit, in terms of aviation alone, isn't done. This is a watching brief. We are now looking at the restart of the, you know, the European, the, the British European, the global aviation industry. We have this document, but there is going to be these, these negotiations and discussions around aviation are going to go on for years. But I suppose we are where we are. And, and all we can ever do here on Five Aero is talk about what's going on at the moment and where we think the market is going. Um, Gent, I'm not going to keep you any longer, let you get back to your mince pies. Jeremy, I'd like to say a specific thank you for your time and the work that you've put into analyse the document. If people want to contact you, Jeremy, what's the best way to do it? Uh, they can contact me. Um, the easiest way, to be honest, is on LinkedIn, where I have put up various posts on a number of different topics and we'll link to the we'll link to jeremy's linkedin on the show notes gents have a wonderful new year i am sure we'll be back shortly afterwards talking about how this is starting to play out but until then happy new year and we will see you in 2021 thanks andrew thank you